scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. This is when Jesus is brought uh, to be presented at the temple. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can have a seat. Good morning, family. How you doing today? Good. Morning. Good. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're particularly glad to have you here. I hope you had a restful Thanksgiving. Uh, I want you to know if you're new to our family, just spending, spending a day with us, you don't have anything to prove here. There's nothing to earn. We as a family celebrate all the time that Jesus has already earned everything on our behalf. He's already proven everything that, we, that needs to be proven in our, in our place. And so it is for us to sit down and take a, take a deep breath and rest in the good and finished work of Jesus and reorient our hope on his faithfulness to us not be freaked out about our own inconsistent faithfulness toward him. So let's, toward that end, let's pray and ask our Father to give us rest as we spend time together. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray now that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done in this space and in Okinawa and in all of Japan and around the globe. We pray that you would give us right now, today, the bread that our souls need to be sustained and to have hope restored. We know, that, we know that the bread that our souls need comes through your word, so please open our ears to hear your voice. Father, you know we have hearts that lead us to temptation, so we pray that you would lead us away from evil and toward life. Father, you know that we have hearts that are slow to give, and so... Please help us to remember the kind forgiveness that you poured out on us in Jesus. 
and that we would forgive those who have trespassed against us, even as you have forgiven us as we have trespassed against you. Father, we recognize in this world in which we live, uh, yours is the kingdom, and yours is all the power, and yours is all of the glory. Help us now to reorient our lives around your kingdom and around your power and around your glory, not our own glory, not our own perception of power, and definitely not our own little kingdoms that we work so hard to build. We pray that you would do this for us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we press into our Advent series this morning. Our overall theme through Advent is waiting. We are a waiting people. Every person is a waiting person. It's just a matter of who or what you're waiting on. We'll, we'll explore that theme as we go. But basically, wherever you believe you can find life or joy, you wait on that person, place, or thing. We're awaiting people. So in Advent, we are waiting for the light to dispel the darkness of night. And that word Advent, so we're in Advent now in the weeks leading up to Christmas. That word Advent simply means arrival or coming, okay? That's all the word means. And in the big story of the Bible, you guys know there are two Advents, right? We've got two of them. The first, the first Advent when Jesus, who is God the Son, took on human form. He was born to human parents. He took on human form so that he could live a perfect place, a perfect life in place of rebels like you and me, and then so that he would die a substitutionary death in place of rebels like you and me, so that we could be rescued into the Father's family, adopted by faith, and forgiven. We deserve judgment, but in Jesus... The God-man who took on human form, we received nothing but mercy. And so we read Isaiah 9-2, or it was read for us when the candles were lit. The candle was lit by Ishmael and Nikki. And um, here's Isaiah 9-2. Here's what it said. Speaking of the first advent, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So Jesus breaks into the darkness of our rebellion, and his first coming is, if you will, uh, the sunrise in a world gripped by darkness. So the sun has risen. But you know from the storyline of the Bible that we live in between the first and the second advent. So while the sun has risen on us, we still live in a world that is gripped by darkness. The valleys are deep, the, the nights are cold, and the darkness is a blinding dark. So we're still awaiting people. We're waiting for the second advent of Jesus when uh, the sun will have risen to the highest point. We'll call it high noon. All shadows are dispelled. All darkness is gone. All brokenness has been recreated into beauty. But the complicated thing about life, the messy thing about life is we live in the in-between. Some people like to call it the already, but not yet. The sun has risen, but it's not yet all the way up in the sky. So we still live in the shadows. One of my favorite Tolkien quotes goes like this. He says, 
everything sad is going to come untrue. That first sunrise, the first advent, the sunrise of Jesus, if you will, into our brokenness, signaled that God the Father, through the work of God the Son, was going to restore all the broken pieces of our existence, all of the brokenness restored into beauty. The sun is risen, but the sun is rising. So the sad things are going to come untrue at that second return of Jesus. In the meantime, we live in the valleys. We climb the mountains, the mountains that are shrouded by clouds. Maybe to get a real sense of what that feels like, um, we actually, Thanksgiving night, drove up to Okuma, spent the night there, spent a couple days there. And on Friday morning, I went for a little run with one of my friends and we left Okuma. You guys have been to Okuma, right? Okay, if you haven't been yet, you need to go to Okuma. Go to Okuma, it's beautiful. And then go north on 58, um, north of Okuma, eventually to Hato Point. Have you been to Hato Point yet? Okay, you gotta go to Hato Point. Um, that road between Okuma and Hato Point is a winding road with hairpin turns. And so my friend and I left, the sun had risen, but because of the geography and the in and outs, we would be in the sun for a second. You would feel its warmth. You would, uh, the rays would be bright and life-giving. And then all of a sudden you would be right back in the shadows again. And you could, off in the distance, you could see that the sun had risen enough so that you were going to get there, but you are going to have to run through one or two or three miles of darkness to make it there. That's life. The sun is risen, guys, and the sun is rising, and the sun is dispelling the darkness. The sun will make it to high noon. Jesus will return. All of the sad things will come untrue. In the meantime, we live in the messy in-between. And maybe during my run, what reminded me of that the most was if you've, if you've driven or run, run that stretch, you know there's a long tunnel. Not as long as the new tunnel right around Nago. You know that one? Yes. The only downside is it takes you away from that first blue seal in Nago. So it's like a gift from God, but a curse at the same time. So pick your poison. There's a tunnel up on 58. And so the sun was up, right? We'd experienced life in the sun, but then we press into the tunnel, can't see it. You can't feel it. Reintroduced to the dark, reintroduced to the cold, unable to see that the sun, in fact, was in the sky. And guys, I just want to acknowledge that there are some of you in the room this morning. It's not just that you're running on this, these hairpin turns and you can see the sun and you're in the shadows and then you're in the sunlight. You're straight up in the tunnel this morning. It's cold and you feel alone. And you feel dark and you can't see the sun and you wonder, is it even there anymore? Will the sun continue to rise? There's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 12, I believe, that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Some of you have been in the shadows for so long, your hope has been deferred for so long that you are heart sick this morning. We've all experienced this in life, right? Uh, my mother-in-law such a good and kind and generous woman sends us multiple care packages throughout the year. Almost every care package features at least two gallons of real New York maple syrup because some people invest in their retirement, some mothers-in-law invest in their favorite sons-in-law, and she just <laughs> feeds my soul. She's so good to me. She's so good to me. Maple syrup aside, the most recent care package contained her presents for my children for Christmas. 
but they've been in the house now for a couple weeks. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The presents are in the house. My children have seen them. They know that they're there. Hope is being deferred, and their hearts are growing sick. It's a twisted thing we do as parents, putting that tree up and the presents out. Just be patient, little buddy. Six more weeks. <laughs> um, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I feel that way about traffic lights in Okinawa. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The light turns green. Like, are we going to move for this one? Or like, we just like the cycling lights so much, we're going to sit here and make sure we get one more cycle. Um, and speaking of cycles, that's why I bought a motorcycle, and you should too, because hope deferred does make the heart sick, and I will shepherd you through the lane-splitting adventure of, of life in Okinawa. Um, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Johnny, my son, is going to turn seven later this week. Last week, he painfully asked me, he's like, Dad, I wish, can, like, can we just fast forward to my birthday? We feel that one. We want to fast. If life came with a fast forward button, my finger would be poised, resting on that thing. Yeah, just resting right there. So much that we would fast. Well, of course, now he's approaching seven, so he wants to fast forward. Y'all are trying to rewind. <laughs> you can't do that either, guys. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. I think where I felt that most acutely was um, <laughs> when I met Linnea. And I wasn't about to have my hope deferred. Uh, no heart sickness there, baby. So we met at the end of January, like last day, first days of February. I proposed to her on April 1st of that same year. So joke's on you guys who didn't ask her before I did. That was the meaning of April 1st. And then we married in July. There was going to be no hope deferral or heart sickness in that relationship. So we marry. And where I felt it most acutely in a painful sort of way after that was when we were we just thought you got married and had babies. Like, that's just what happened. Like, that's what my dad said anyway. And um, it didn't work that way for us. And so months went by and years went by and, and miscarriages experienced. And I remember sitting in the room um, at the hospital for a routine exam, ultrasound, waiting for the, it was a joyful moment, right? It was all, supposed to be all joy. And you're looking at the screen and you're listening and there's no movement on the screen, and there is, there, is, there is no noise, no heartbeat. And it's in moments like that that you're reminded, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And guys, there are some of you in this room who, for you, that story is very real because it's a personal lived experience right now. But for some of you, it's a metaphor in that you are waiting for that heartbeat or for that life, but your hope is deferred and your heart is sick. Guys, the reason why the theme of hope is so important is this. The gospel tells us the truth about ourselves. And listen, you need to hear this. Hope in your heart is not a renewable resource. You don't have an inexhaustible supply of hope. You, listen, you cannot generate your own hope. And hope deferred will make the heart sick. So here's our, our big idea for this morning. We're, we're waiting with hope. Next week, we'll explore waiting with peace and then joy and then love, but today it's waiting with hope. And what we're going to see is this, waiting depletes hope. Just waiting, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But devout waiting actually 
deepens your hope so that the very season that is postured as your greatest enemy actually becomes your greatest ally because God works in that season, in a season that would otherwise deplete your hope to deepen it because you are anchored on him. Devout waiting deepens hope. We're all waiting people, but we don't wait well, do we? We do not wait well. We are my son. We think we hold or we wish we held a remote control. You're still looking for it. And you would press fast forward all the time if you could. We don't wait well. We need help. And that's why. Um, so here's actually, this is, um, this is the unofficial title for today's sermon. I, unofficial, and I saved it for now because just don't tell my mom. Uh, she wouldn't really like, and my grandmother probably wouldn't like this either. Uh, but here's my title, Waiting with Old People. Advent with Old People, that's, that's the title, Advent with Old People. And here's, here's what I mean. It's actually not my title. Um, it actually originates with Moses, so it's biblical. And let me show you, Deuteronomy, let me show you, Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to God's kids, you and me, people just like you and me, who have been incredibly rescued and given life where the sad things are coming untrue and the broken things are being made beautiful, but they are a forgetful people and they have lived in the dark tunnels and their life has been this winding experience on the coastline where one minute they're in the sun, the next they're in the shadows, and when they're in the shadows, they're just like you and me. Where are you, God? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. I thought you would be present. I thought you would give me what I needed. And here's what Moses told them to do. Look back, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Now check this out, here's Advent with old people. Ask your dad and he will show you that I am the hope-giving God and faithful. Ask your elders and they will tell you. See, that's also where show and tell comes from. They will show you and they will tell you. You need to hear it and you need to see it and you need to hear it and see it from old people. Advent with old people. Otherwise, our hope depletes. And so we meet two old people. In the text this morning, it's already been read for us. Uh, Luke chapter 2, we have Simeon and we have Anna. Uh, Advent with old people. So look, we're just acknowledging we don't really have old people in our family, really, kind of. I'm not going to point any of the borderline people out. <laughs> but the traditional like grandpa, grandma, right? They're not here, not here. So we got to work a little harder than most families. And so since they're not really with us, we're going to invite Anna and Simeon into our space. And they are going to, for this Advent, we're going to do circles around this text. Okay, This is the only place we're going right here in Luke 2 um, because we need them that badly. And so you're just going to have to adopt Anna and Simeon as your grandparents this Advent. Is that okay? All right, so Advent with old people, your grandpa's name is Simeon, your grandma's name is Anna, and we need to ask them so that they can show and tell us. So let's start with Simeon. Verse 25. Now, it's going to feel like I'm skipping some important parts of this passage, but like I said, we're going to do circles around it for the next couple of weeks, so we'll zoom in, we'll, we'll zoom in, we'll zoom out, we'll hit it, we'll hit it all, okay? Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, 
verse 25, we start out and we're like, man, I'm already different than Simeon. We're not the same. Like he, his waiting persevered over time, but I'm nothing like, look, he says he was righteous. I don't even, I haven't lived a righteous day in my life. I'm not like Simeon. I can't persevere in hope like he did. Well, guys, the gospel has a good word for you this morning and hope. Simeon was not righteous on his own. So he is just like you, a rebel. You're not righteous on your own. You're not righteous on your own. How is Simeon righteous? Well, the Bible is very clear. A person is declared righteous only this way, by faith in the promises of God. That makes a person righteous. So um, the difference is, uh, here, here are our choices. You can exercise faith in yourself or you can exercise faith, faith in the people or places or things around you, uh, or, which are both expressions of our rebellion, or you can express faith in God himself. And the Father says, when you express faith in my promises, uh, I count you as righteous. Meaning, not only have you been forgiven, but Jesus' rightness has been credited to you. You're my son or you're my daughter, okay? So the good news of the gospel is that you too can be righteous if you will renounce living by faith in yourself, if you will renounce living by faith in your religious ability or practice, if you will renounce living by faith in our political system or um, patriotism or whatever it is that we tend to live by faith in and live by faith in Jesus, the Father says you are righteous. Okay, so we have a lot in common with Simeon. This is attainable. So he was a righteous man and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. So here it is. Simeon was a waiting man, just like you. Okay, we have that in common as well. Simeon's waiting, but he's an old man. He's been waiting his entire life. You've only been waiting five or 10 or 15 or 20 years. You can make it to where Simeon's at. You can make it. Um, Not if you're working to generate that hope in your own soul. And we're about to see the difference, okay? So Simeon is waiting for what the author says is the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? Well, consolation simply means comfort through rescue. Whoa, that's what all of us are waiting for, comfort through rescue. Some of you are waiting on comfort through rescue via your next set of orders, right? That will be my rescue. I will finally have comfort. Some of you are waiting on comfort through rescue. Whatever it is, change of circumstances, different spouse, different boss, different community, different church, different, just different and better, different and better. That is our cultural approach to comfort through rescue. Guys, we are all waiting people and we are all waiting on comfort through rescue, okay? Now, here's what I wanna show you. This is so important in the text. Simeon was promised that he would not die until he saw God's provision of comfort through rescue. Mary and Joseph show up. They bring Jesus with them to the temple to go through their cultural traditions. We'll see more of that in the weeks to come. As soon as Simeon sees Jesus, what does he say? I can die in peace now. Uh, you kept your word. You, 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 I see my comfort through rescue. Guys, that's a huge word for us this morning. A couple things. You're not the only one waiting. One of the first temptations is to look around and be like, they got what they were waiting for. They're happily married. They have a kid. Their job must be good. Everybody else but me has what they're waiting for. No, we're all waiting. Simeon was waiting. You're waiting. I'm waiting. We're waiting on comfort through rescue. Here's what is so important to us, guys. Jesus alone 
will prove to be your comfort through rescue. You can chase as many comforts as your heart desires. You can chase as many rescue. Um, you, can, you can chase as many change of circumstances as you want. Your heart will not be comforted or satisfied. Guys, a change in circumstances will not comfort your heart. It will not satisfy you. Jesus alone will be your comfort, your comfort through rescue. Okay, so that's huge for us to see. Simeon sees Jesus as his comfort through rescue. Here's what I want you to see. This, this is it for this week. I want you to see this one word. The reason Simeon persevered in hope until his old age was this one word here, devout. He was devout. Now, devout in our generation has fallen on some hard times. Um, we're like, man, that's an extreme word. Like, that's radical. That's uh, too far right or too far left. Like, I'm normal. I'm right here in the middle. Don't, like, we're almost afraid of being labeled as devout because it's extreme. And that's too bad because devout is God's ideal for a life lived beautifully. Now, whether or not you think you're devout, we're all devout. The difference is Simeon's, um, the object of his devoutness, if you will, is God himself, right? So whenever the word devout, which is very closely related to the word devoted, is used in the New Testament about a person, is to say that the object of their devotion is God himself. We're all devout though, right? Let's look at some examples of how we're devout. And this is a little crazy. Um, I am devoted to running. I run. You may be devoted to going to the gym, but most of us are, we are devout when it comes to our physical fitness. Here's what's crazy. We will, you have this book, you will keep a devotional, because that's where that word comes from. You have devotions in the gym and you keep a journal about lifting weights but you don't keep a journal about the weightier things of your soul. Guys, if there's anything that tells on our culture more than anything else, it is our addiction to body image and physical fitness. Yes, we're called to steward the body that's given us. Yes, most of you have vocations that demand, well, let's, let's not kid ourselves. The physical fitness standards nowadays are not rigorous, okay? So stop it, stop it. You could exercise twice a year and maintain, so just stop. But anyway, we have journals for picking heavy things up and putting them down, like Stone Age stuff, right? And we don't take the time to meaningfully reflect on the weightier things of our soul and write them down. Whoa. Okay, so maybe not the gym, but maybe it's meal prepping. We're devout. You've already got your place Sunday, so today's the day. You cook all the things, and you have all the separated containers, and you fill them up for the week. Now, good on you. Good. That's great. But it's an example of our devotion, and what it demonstrates is mm, my, the absence of devotion as it relates to my relationship with God is not because I'm not able to be devoted. 
It's because my heart is actually revealing that I'm devoted to all of these other things or people based on the way I use my time and invest my passions and invest my resources. Our problem's not inability and our problem's not lack of want to. We're just, we're telling on ourselves. So the word devote or devotion simply means, or devout means to be careful, to make a plan, to be persistent, to pay attention, to give it weight. And Simeon was devout when it came to his relationship with God. And it was that devoutness that served as the regenerator of hope in his soul. Because waiting alone depletes hope. It diminishes. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Simeon's devote, not that he was a devout man, but that in his devotion, he was, um, he was living a life that was centered on his creator, his God, his sustainer. And it was God who, through that devotion, was regenerating the hope in Simeon's heart. Now, interestingly, all we read is that Simeon was devout. And I know I just said a lot of words, but the author doesn't describe his devotion at all. But he gives us Anna, and he describes her devotion, her devoutness, if you will. Check this out. I'll just flip the page, or it'll be on the screen for you. There was a prophetess, Anna. Uh, prophetess, a prophet or prophetess is somebody who speaks on behalf of God for the good of another person. Someone who speaks on behalf of God to point a person to Jesus. So any of you can speak a prophetic word. If you really want to speak a prophetic word, speak what's already written down in Scripture. All of Scripture is prophetic in that sense. Um, but Anna, like Simeon, was gifted in a unique way. The Spirit was present with her in a unique way where she actually uh, had the title of prophetess and she spoke a ton of words that God had given her for the good of other people. Daughter of Phanuel, tribe of Asher. Now here's, here's what I should have titled my, my, it's not Advent with old people, it's Advent with persons advanced in years. That would have been, the, that's, that's how it's written right there. Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. That, that verse is interpreted two different ways. The first way, like it shows up in mine, is that she got married and was married for seven years and then became a widow and was a widow until she was 84. So she's at least 84. The other way that verse is commonly translated, and it's unclear, it could go either way, is that she got married and then she was married for seven years and became a widow uh, for 84 more years, right? So it's cumulative now. So at youngest, she's 84. At the oldest, she's like 104, right? She's old. She's in the triple digits, right? Now check this out. Here's what devotion or devoutness looks like. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That's devout. That's devotion. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, there are two components to this devoutness, if you will. We can break it down. And guys, this is very simple and very attainable. There are two elements to her devoutness, if you will. The first is presence, and the second is posture, okay? Now, when I say presence, let's, let's use the word nearness. She's near to somebody. And when we say posture, let's say she's needy. She's posturing herself as needy. So devotion is nearness and neediness expressed, that's why you go to the gym. 
That's why you meal prep, right? Devotion, no matter what it is, devoutness is always nearness and neediness expressed. I need something, so I'm going to make sure I have a plan to keep myself near. That's devoutness. That's devotion. So let's take the first half. She, it says she never left the temple. Now, that's a figure of speech in the same way that it would be true. Like I would say when I was a young Marine, I say it all the time, I lived in the gym. Uh, in fact, I would say I worshiped in the gym. Now, I didn't. I couldn't stay there 24-7, but that's, that's what my life looked like. Now it looks like I run all the time. I don't run all the time, but I run so much it's like I run all the time. I drink coffee all the time. I don't really, but that's how it would seem, right? It's a figure of speech that the author is saying or using to let us know that devoutness expressed as we see it in Anna is that she planned her life so that she was always near the presence of God and the presence of God's people. Guys, the temple stood as a representative place where God was closest to his people. You wanted to be near to God then? You'd go to the temple, which is beautiful now in the New Testament, right? Because where's the temple? Is it this building? Where is it? God templed with you, guys. It's beautiful. Okay, so she goes to the temple to be near God, but also God's people, because God's people would gather there. So she, guys, she planned so that she would be near the God who created her, planned. But it's not just presence, it's a posturing, and that's where the prayer and fasting come, come in. Prayer and fasting taken together are the way in which we say to our Father, I need you. I need you. Guys, let's just sit with us for a minute and be humble here. Let's, let's just say, let's ask the opposite then. What does it say truly about my beliefs then in the absence of prayer and fasting in my day-to-day -day life now? I mean, I'll just tell you what it, what it means about my heart. You can make up your mind about your own heart. It's me as an adopted in son looking at my dad and saying, I don't need you today. I got this. I'm good. Fasting. I actually grew up in a culture that taught me I shouldn't fast. Some of you may have grown up in a culture like that. We don't really grow up hearing much about fasting in healthy ways. The best way that I'd like to describe it now is this. Fasting is choosing to go without the things I would like to have so that I can focus all of my appetites on gaining the one thing that I actually need, and that is God himself. Rather than fasting, we feast. We satisfy all our appetites all the time in the name of self-care. I got to run. I got to lift. I got to eat right. I got to sleep. I need me time. I need to binge watch. I need to read. I need to do all these things. I need to be alone. I need people. All the things. We don't fast because we feast and our senses are so numbed we're not aware of the, the longings in our souls that can only be satisfied by God himself. Fasting forces us to come face to face with our appetites and not meet them with created things, but to sit in our hunger and to turn to God himself and, and say to him that I'm not moving until you satisfy my soul. 
I need you more than I need anything else. So here, guys, this is a beautiful gift of fasting. As rebels, we have hearts that are constantly running after other God substitutes. Fasting is God's gift to me to help me train my heart to bring it back so that I can align my appetites, what I want, with what I actually need, and that is God himself. So Anna is this picture of devotion for us where she is practicing uh, nearness, presence, but also this posture of neediness. Guys, devotion is nearness and neediness. Neediness. We can do this. We can do this. So let's just stop and ask this question. If I were to take the last week of my life, has there been an evidenced devotion or devoutness expressed toward God my Father? Are there rhythms in my life right now that keep my little rebel heart that tends to run away from my dad Keep them, keeps my heart close to my dad in nearness? Have I been near to my father this week? Have I been present with my father? Have I postured myself as the needy kid that I am? See, our culture would say you're not needy. The gospel says you're needy, and the good news is the father delights in satisfying your needs. Near and needy. Guys, this is why we need Advent with old people. There's another reason you need Advent with old people. There's this quote. Oh, yeah, wait, wait, wait. Before I give you the quote, let me just show you this. Luke 2, verse 28, 38. Coming up at that very hour, Anna began to give thanks to God. And what did she do? She spoke of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's the author's way of saying whether they knew it or not, every person in Jerusalem was waiting. They may not have known what they were waiting for, but deep down, their souls were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna saw that redemption, and she said, I know where redemption is. I know where hope is found. Listen to me. And that is why we need Advent with old people. That's it. I came across this quote this week. Uh, an actress, she's no longer alive. Her name was Ingrid Bergman. And she said this, getting old. Now, I don't know anything about the first half of this quote. Um, some of you may. Getting old is like climbing a mountain. You get a little out of breath. But here's what I really liked about what, what she said. But the view is much better. Guys, people like Simeon and Anna had lived through every valley. They had walked through every tunnel. They had been beat down by every brutal aspect of life in a broken world. They had seen the sun rise. And through their devotion, which is not saying they were awesome people, guys, because here's the deal. This is not a sermon that yells at you and says, now go be a tougher Christian. Go Go be a better, devout person. The gospel would look at you gently and say, don't be tougher. Be truer to who you actually are. And that is a needy kid who desperately needs the restorative work that only God the Father can do through Jesus and the work of his spirit. And how do you experience that restorative work? Nearness and neediness. Don't be tougher. Just be truer. Be humble enough to admit, I am the most needy planet on this rock, planet, person on this rock, and then get near to your dad and express your need. That's what devoutness is. It's not about being a better Christian or a tougher person. It's about being truer, acknowledging your weakness, and being close to the one who is strong, right? Your hope is an exhaust, it exhausts itself. It's, it's gone. And the Father alone is the one who renews that in your soul. 
And so Anna and Simeon have a view that we don't have because they've lived decades longer than we have. They've seen the sunrise. They are closer to the sun now than you are or I am. They have climbed this mountain of life and they are climbing still and they look back behind them and here's all of us. And Moses says, ask him a question. Ask him. That was Deuteronomy 32. Let's finish here. Let me show you how beautiful this is, guys. This is why you need an Anna or a Simeon. Verse 7 said, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your dad and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. So ask Anna and Simeon. Now what are they going to tell you? Verse 10. This is what they're going to say. God found me in a desert land. He found me in the howling waste of the wilderness. Guys, he found me there. He didn't just find me there, Anna would say. Anna would say to you, he encircled me. I was alone and he completely encircled me in the wilderness place. And not only that, he didn't just encircle me. He cared for me. Every need, every sorrow, every sadness, every longing, every appetite, everything. He knows and he cares. And he didn't just care. He keep, guys, read this. He kept me, Simeon would say, as the apple of his eye. I am his deeply loved son. He will never leave me in the wilderness like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. In other words, the father was guiding him somewhere. You're not in the wilderness for, for no reason. The son is risen. The father is with you through Jesus, and he is taking you out of the wilderness, and he will bring you to the full sunrise when all of the darkness in your life has been dispelled. And you may not have any reason why you're in the darkness in this season, but when the sun is all the way risen and Jesus has returned, the picture will be perfectly crystal clear and you will know why you have been in the shadows. And it will be life. Guys, let's just be present with this for a moment. Because some of you are in that dark place. Some of you are in the tunnel right now. And you need to hear Simeon's voice and Anna's voice yelling, yelling calling out to you. And in the same way that the Father found them in the wilderness, you are not alone in your wilderness right now. Jesus is present with you. His Spirit is present with you. He has encircled you guys. Nothing can happen to you apart from his care. He will never leave you. You can't fall out of his protection. The creator of the universe, let this sink in. The God who created galaxies that still cannot be numbered or actually measured is actively encircling you for your protection. What are we afraid of again? What is too great for that God? What will overwhelm you? Nothing as long as he is encircling you. He is encircling and he cares for you. Guys, it's beautiful. You are not alone in the desert place. All right, I have to wrap this up, but before I do, I just, two things. I want to make sure the gospel's clear, but I also need to say a hard word to you that I say at least once a year, and it may offend some of you, and that's okay. I don't care anymore because I'm in my 40s. 
Plus, as a pastor, if I'm not regularly offending you through the word, from the word, I'm just not doing my job, okay? So here's the deal. In our context, if you are in your 20s, you are midlife. If you are in your 30s, are you, are you all ready for this? You are over the hill. Our average age here is so young. If you're in your 20s, you're midlife. If you're in your 30s, you're over the hill. If you are in your 40s, you might as well be living in an assisted living nursing home <laughs> for the rest of your time in Okinawa. Okay? That's just life here, guys. We are so young. Now listen. Some of us never had an Anna or a Simeon. And we have spent years turned into decades growing bitter that we did not experience somebody like that turning around on the mountain, throwing us a rope and pulling us up behind him, showing us how to be devout and to live with sustained hope. You know what you need to do? You need to get alone with God for like 24 hours. You need to write it all down. You need to find a spiritual mentor who will walk you through it. You need to lament it. You need to mourn it. You need to grieve it. You need to verbalize it. You need to yell it. And then you need to get over it. It's going to be okay. The Father sent Jesus, guys. He sent him to pursue every one of us, to be devout in our place, and then to show us how to live in response to the gospel, to be near and to be needy. We're going to be okay. But how do we break the cycle in the family? Now it's your turn. You turn around, and you are Anna, or you are Simeon, and you speak these words of Deuteronomy 32 to the young people behind you who are currently clinging with sweaty, blistered fingertips, falling or straight up, willfully jumping off the mountain because they are despairing. And guys, you're not alone. Look, your marriage is a mountain right now? Yes. Yes, it is. You will, if you are married, you will go through seasons where your marriage is nothing but hard work and all of the questions will be asked. Why did we even marry? Is it worth it? Yes, hang on. Guys, parenting will prove to be the tallest, most dangerous, most unexplored, soul-crushing mountain you can explore. It's normal. You'll be okay. Singleness. Long climb. Lonely. Cold. Dark. You'll be okay. Keep climbing. Keep going. You're not alone. Right? Ladies, I'm sorry, there's no other way to say this to you. In Okinawa, you're Anna. You're old. It's time to turn around. Even if nobody's turned around to you, it's time to turn around. We need your voice. Men, you're Simeon, okay? It is time to turn around. Like a rope, use your voice to throw it back and give life. I gotta be done. I have this problem way too much. No, I'm just done. Grant, why don't you come on up? I'll stop. He's gonna lead us into a period of, of reflection and uh, repentance perhaps and celebrating the gospel together.